Please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. As we continue through our exposition of this wonderful, wonderful book. And when you found it, please stand. I'm going to actually read the entirety of the first chapter, though we're going to focus only in verses 5 through 9 in our exposition. I think it's a good reminder that a text outside of a context can sometimes become a pretext for a proof text. So we want to sort of get the flow of what Paul is giving to his cohort here left on the island of Crete. Titus chapter 1. I'm going to be reading up to chapter 2, verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, upon the hope of eternal life, which the unlying God promised before the ages began, but in his own times manifested his promise through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the reason why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but rather hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, holding firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in healthy teaching, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be healthy in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, disqualified for any good work. But as for you, speak with what accords with healthy teaching. Well, this is the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you have loved us so much that you sent your son into the world to deal with our sin. We're thankful that he is our savior. And we thank you, Father, that you also loved the world so much that you poured out your spirit upon your church at Pentecost. And we thank you, Father, that you so loved the world that when Christ ascended, he also gave the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherd teachers. And so, Father, we know you still love the world because you're still working in and through the church. And would you help us to see the big picture, that this, this small letter to some unknown Gentile on a very uh, unknown island still has application and is pertinent for us so many thousands of years later uh, as we tie ourselves into the great story of redemption, how we're part of this unfolding story of how you are saving a people through your servant and giving now your servants the Holy Spirit to teach and to live and to testify of your goodness and your glory and your grace in Christ. So, Father, we might be tempted just to think this is a message for the elders, but, Father, I pray that you would help us to see 
uh, that all Scripture truly is God-breathed, and it is profitable not only for the man of God, but for the people of God. Would you, would you instruct us this morning, and would you speak to our hearts, and would you strengthen, Lord, our resolve to live for your glory? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So before I get into my introduction, if you're in Titus, I sort of want to set the table by having you turn back a couple of books to 1 Timothy. It's only two books. But you may have recognized, even within my prayer, that when Paul is writing these letters to his co-workers, men like Titus or Timothy, there's a greater purpose that he has in mind, not just to strengthen them or just one individual church. But last week, I tried to make it very clear that whenever you're reading Paul, you need to read it through his lens that he is the apostle of God's glory in Christ through the church to the ends of the earth. Paul is consumed with God's glory in Christ, but that glory in Christ is now to be manifested and perpetuated through the church to the ends of the earth. Paul is a missionary, and so you have to read Titus through this lens of Paul's Desire to see God glorified as the church is edifying. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. It, it, it sort of sounds a lot like Titus. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one must behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So what Paul is saying here is that Christ has entrusted to his church the stewardship of this mystery. And what is the mystery? It's the gospel. He, Christ, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. This is the message that God has entrusted to the church. This is the trustworthy word is taught that God is going to use to save his elect. And he saves his elect through the church. And so the church is likened in 1 Timothy 3 to a household, to a family. It's quite fitting, actually, that we would bring Greg and hope into membership, and for you to see that this is like a family, a family that God has gifted and a God has entrusted with a stewardship to be his lights in the world, to not only guard, but to further the gospel to the ends of the world. And that's what Paul is doing to Titus, who is stationed in this island called Crete. Paul is concerned about God's glory, and so he's writing this letter to Titus and to the churches there. Verse 5, we're going to see the purpose for which Paul had left Titus there. This is why I left you in Crete. Singular purpose. So that you might put what remained into order. And so what most commentators think, and I would agree with, is that Titus was stationed there. That Paul, after his first imprisonment, which you can read about in Acts 28, after he was released from prison in Rome, you can't stop him. Paul had been commissioned to take the glorious gospel to the ends of the earth. And we don't read about Crete in the book of Acts. And so Paul, after he's released from prison in Rome, he gets right back to it. And so he's writing this letter to Titus sometime between his first imprisonment, from which he was released, and his second imprisonment, where he was martyred. And they had sailed past Crete on the way to Rome, and I can't help but think that he's like, I am going to preach the gospel there. And so, as you read through the book of Acts, Paul would always go and preach the gospel, and in God's purposes, he would draw sinners to himself as the gospel is preached. Churches would form. However, there's still something lacking, which is why Titus is left there. Do you see it? This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order. Paul had planted a church, but it's not enough just to plant a church. This church needs to have shepherds. You see it all over the New Testament. And so Titus has a commission. And it's very important and dear to Paul because Paul's concerned about the glory of God. So let me just throw it out there. 
when you're thinking about a church and when you're looking for a church, what are some of the things that you sort of put on the non-negotiable list? Or perhaps you know some people who are looking for churches. You go to the website and what are you looking for? I would encourage you to go first to the leadership and check it out. They might have a, a nice coffee bar. They might have really nice ushers and greeters. And I love you guys for doing that. They might have a, a rockin' worship band. And I hate that moniker because worship is the entire service, not just the music. They might have a really flashy, you know, ministry for your kids. But I would encourage you to think biblically and say, what is Paul concerned about? He wants to see God glorified in Christ through the church. Therefore, Titus, make sure you have godly leadership. This is what is remaining, and it needs to be put into order. It's an interesting Greek word, and it has the idea of straightening. The root is ortho. Just think of an orthopedic surgeon or orthodontics. And so what happened is Paul, likely with Titus, had planted churches, and then Paul had to leave. We don't know why, but Paul had to leave. He's like, Titus, it's not enough. You can't join me. These churches need leadership. And we're going to see next week that the reason they need leadership is because there's always false teachers seeking to distort, disrupt, deter the church. So put it into order. And the Greek is simply this. You put into order what is going on in the church by appointing elders in every town. And let's not go too fast through that. You have to appoint elders, plural, in every town, singular. Crete was a very busy island, lots of trade, commerce going on. How many churches Paul planted there? We do not know. But I do know this, that every single church needs to have a plurality of elders. And so I was thinking, of course, of, of Tabor. And how should we be praying for Tabor? And there's lots of talk about, well, we need to get a, a building. A building would be great if we could have our own building and not rent. And that's great, but it's not the first priority. Whenever you're thinking of planting a church, say in Fort McLeod, right? Some of you are thinking about that. Say we're thinking of Coaldale or in Lethbridge, right? Some of you are thinking about missions. What is the most important thing to the Apostle Paul who is absolutely concerned about Christ's glory in the church? This is what you need to do. Titus, you don't have a list of 50 things to do. You have one thing to do. Make sure that you have elders appointed in every town as I directed you. And this word directed in the English is a little bit weak. It's a strong Greek word. It's something that generals would direct those under them. A general commands them. There's an authoritative weightiness to Paul's command. This isn't, well, I kind of said if you, if you get time, Titus, you know, you can hit it up. No, Titus. I, in the Greek, emphatic, the servant of God, the apostle of Christ, the one who has been entrusted with this authority, I am directing, I am commanding you with the authority of the risen Christ. Straighten things out. So Paul was there. They planted the church. Things are going straight. Paul had to leave. We're going to see false teachers come in, and they start to deviate from the truth. Straighten things out. I don't know if you've ever had braces, but you, you put those initial little things on, and then you have to go every month, and they have to straighten things out. They tighten this. They loosen that. That's what Titus is doing. The initial work had happened through Paul and the preaching of the gospel. They were founded in the gospel, but they need to be further grounded in the gospel. Healthy churches are far more important to Christ than they are often to us. Elders, plural. You can look that up in Acts 14.23. Paul would plant a church and they would go and visit and they would then appoint elders. Why would there need to be elders? Well, we're going to see that there's strength in numbers. There's wisdom in numbers. This goes all the way back to the wisdom of Solomon. This goes all the way back actually to the example of the Old Testament. Elders. This, this word has the idea of maturity. From the Old Testament and into the New Testament, God's people are to be shepherded by those who are mature. This doesn't necessarily mean old in age, though there's wisdom to that. Presbyteros. We need to have elders in every town. Titus, I don't know how long it's going to take, but you need to make sure this happens. Before I send you elsewhere, you need to appoint elders in every town as I commanded you. So that's the task. It's simple as that. 
That's the priority, you might say, of Titus's mission. Verse 6, though, begins to explain that you don't just appoint any old elder into this. Look at the qualifications necessary. If anyone is above reproach, and you're going to see this word repeated twice. And so this is sort of, when you think of an elder, you might forget all of these different pros and cons, the things they need to strive after, the things they need to avoid. But if you can remember what is sort of the, the, the banner over what an elder should be in the church, it should be this word, above reproach. Now, before we get into this, some people are, are, are so focused on the, the nitty-gritty of this, and what Paul's really doing is he's painting for us a general picture of what an elder should be. Generally speaking, they should be above reproach. Blameless, I'm not sure I like that translation. It almost conveys the idea of, of, of perfection. They, can, you know, they need to be without fault. No, that's, that's really not Paul saying. Generally speaking, in their family, in their conduct, in their character, in their dealings with the church, in their dealings in the world, they need to be unimpeachable. There's lots of that happening, especially south of us. Everybody's trying to impeach everybody, and you impeach someone for a major offense. And so that's what Paul is saying to Titus. You need to be unimpeachable the way I was unimpeachable, and you need to now appoint men who are unimpeachable. If anyone is above reproach. Firstly, he talks about being above reproach in the home. Okay? And I forget which commentator who said it, but he said the home is a wonderful training ground for the ministry. And when you think about it, if you were to go to a church looking for a pastor, or you went to a, a website where you're looking for pastors, I've never done that on a Monday when I'm depressed, but often this is what they'll put. We need to have someone who has a, a master's of divinity, preferred. They need to have experience in shepherding, well, they don't say shepherding, uh, of, of overseeing a congregation of 500 plus people. They need to be proficient in the languages. I've never once seen this, though, that they shepherd their family well. And, and the order is important because that's the danger is that you can have men who publicly can put on a, a wonderful mask and can fake it till they make it with fancy Greek words, and yet their home is in disarray. And so the first focus, Titus, is I want them to be above reproach, not only in their speech, but firstly in their family. Do you see that? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. And I shouldn't have to say this, but those who are tasked with overseeing, shepherding, leading Christ's church are to be men. It's just the world we live in. It's so incredibly obvious. However, so many churches in seeking to be pleasing to the world and they don't want to offend the sensibility of feminists or they don't want to, you know, offend anybody who might think that there's a chauvinistic model. No, this is just what God's word says. It's just the way God has designed things. And I think it's incredibly arrogant, actually, for people to say they know better than God or that God is a little bit dated. That, that, that worked in, in sort of patriarchal times, but we're enlightened. Just look at the news. We're not as enlightened as we think. We're actually very chaotic and in darkness. And so there are to be men, not a man, but men in every town. And the first thing this man and these men need to be is above reproach with regards to their wife. And most commentators, again, just think this is sort of a, a faithfulness with regards to sexuality. I think it's more than that. Paul could have said, you know, that they're faithful in regards to their sexuality with their wife. But I think it's more. You could translate this, rightly so, that he's a one-woman man. But not only with his eyes, thinking about, like, physically looking at her, but just with his devotion and his time. That he is faithful to one woman that he's faithful to this wife when he's on his phone, when he's on the computer screen, when he's doing visitation, that he's faithful to his wife even when she's not there. He's faithful when ministering. Because we're going to see that Cretan culture, like Roman culture, was debauched. 
even their false small g god Zeus was perverted. That he was a lustful small g god, which makes us think that he was created in the image of man. So as we're thinking about elders, as you're thinking and praying about your elders, this is something you should pray. Lord, would you give pastors Ryan and Nathan and Charles and Cliff this one wife, one woman heart, one woman, one wife eyes, one woman, one wife devotion? But then would you pray it for yourself? I watched a really good sermon by Vaudi Bauckham on this, and he said that you'd think this is only for elders, but actually this sermon is for the whole church. Because when we get into chapter 2, Paul has very little to say to the young men. Why? And I agree with Bauckham on this. Is because the elders are to be pouring out their lives into the young men, saying, follow me. That's why I read chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 6, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's all he says. Showing yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. So the elders, as they model biblical manhood, biblical leadership, the young men then get it, and then they're godly husbands to their wives, who are the young women, who then raise up their children, who become young men and young women, and it just keeps perpetuating. This is how important the church is in the mission and purpose of God. That in-reach leads to healthy outreach, but in-reach is important. He doesn't say you need to be out there, you know, on every island preaching the gospel. No, they need to be at home. They need to be loving their wife. They need to be above reproach in their marriage and in their family. Did you notice that? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are faithful and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now, again, be very careful of being overly literalistic with this because some people will say, well, you can't be a pastor, elder, overseer unless you have more than one child. I remember some things. Some of the most dangerous people you meet are those who are just so hyper-literalistic that they miss what Paul's really saying. Right? Like, what happens if, if there's an older elder and his wife dies? Is he disqualified now, even though he's a godly man with his children and grandchildren? He's not the husband of one wife. She's dead. Right? He, he only has one child. It's not children, plural. Paul is painting for us, again, the general picture of a godly man who is unimpeachable, you can't accuse him. And if you do, there's no grounds to it. Because elders are always accused, by the way. But there's, there's no substance to it. And so, first, let him be a godly husband. And secondly, and relatedly, let him be a godly father. Because remember, the home is the training ground for the ministry. If a man, as you see in First Timothy 3, does not know how to manage his own household, he has no right to be managing the household of God which we saw was the pillar and buttress of the truth. His children are believers in the ESV. Perhaps you have another translation and it says faithful. I would hold to that. Not only is it allowable in the Greek, it just makes no sense because Paul's talking about the character of, of, the, of the elder and the overseer. And I have, right, we're, we're reformed here. God is sovereign in whom he calls, whom he chooses, whom he saves. And I wish that somehow there was a magical correlation that my godliness guaranteed my children were saved. But I have to leave that to the sovereign providence of God. However, I need to lead my family in such a way that they catch on to this faithfulness. The way I'm faithful to my wife, the way I'm faithful to my children, they then will be faithful as children in their roles. His children are, I would translate that, faithful. Some, some commentators would say that they're obedient and submissive, and I think that's very warranted here, okay? And so Paul is saying, Titus, don't just pick and choose your buddies. Don't just go out and say, who's the best speaker? Who's the most charismatic? Who can gather people to himself? Who are the men who are faithful when no one but God is watching? Because those are the men who will be faithful to the church through the hard times. So how can you pray, not only for your pastors, but to pray for others? Pray for the men of this church, that they would love their wives and that they would be able to lead their families in such a way that their children are not open to the charge of debauchery. 
or insubordination. This is the picture of just being unruly, uncontainable. Right? They're just wild. You know, they're at the store. You've seen it. Hopefully not pastors, kids, but just the kids having meltdowns. And I'm not talking about two-year-olds. I'm talking like 12-year-olds. Right? No, we are to so lead, so shepherd our children, so show them the gospel that they themselves are on the path of, of obedience, the path of faithfulness, that no one can say not only about the father but even the children that they are debauched or insubordinate. And this is important because the same word is used in the next section. The false teachers are insubordinate, that they're full of debauchery. And there's a little saying in the case household, as goes the king, so goes the people. Well, that's also true. As goes the shepherd, so go the sheep. You mean in the church? I mean in the home. When, when you see a little rascal who's insubordinate, and living in revelry, or they're uh, unconstrainable. Yes, that little kid needs a spank, but the dad needs a reproof as well. Because as goes the shepherd, so go the sheep. And so this is a call not only to pastors, but for you men who are fathers, you young men who are desiring to be married and to have children. This is what you should be praying. Lord, would you help me to so be able to control myself that I might be able, therefore, to demonstrate, display, model good works, what a life of self-control looks like. If the children are not living lives of self-control, it's probably because the dad is not living a life of self-control. That's just how it, it just sort of filters down. And so, Titus, first thing, make sure you have godly elders. They're godly in their homes, and I would say they're also godly in their habits, or you might say godly in their conduct and character. Do you see that in verse 7? Notice that he moves from the word elders to the word overseer. And those, those titles are, are, are nice sort of word pictures for us, right? Elder, wise, sensible, level-headed, mature, life experience, okay? Elder. And now he moves to the word episkopos. You've maybe heard of the Episcopal Church. Well, this is the Episcopos, and it just means epi over scopos seer. And so this is one of the duties. It's not only to be wise and to be mature in our example, but also to watch over our households. And as we watch over our households, we then are qualified to watch over God's household. Do you see that? For an overseer as God's steward. Interesting word. Oikonomos which comes from the Greek word oikos, house, right? Charles, when we say we'd have our oikos meetings, you know, quarterly, that just means it's a house meeting. This is a house. It's a family. The church is not a business. It's not a corporation. It's not a club. It's a family. It's a household. And God is the father, and because he loves his household, he appoints good stewards, right? When you go out on date night, you're just like, who should we get to babysit the kids? I don't know, just anybody, you hate your kids? No, you, you want somebody who's going to watch over your kids. Someone who's going to be a good influence and model. Someone who will keep them in line. You want to, as it were, hire a good steward. So, an overseer. As God's steward, he must. Right? If you look at my Bible, I promise, I've got that in black over the words, must. This is not optional. You know what the Greek word for must means in English? It means must. This is non-negotiable. As God's steward, entrusted with the most valuable thing to God on earth, his people, you must be this. Again, above reproach, same Greek word. Unimpeachable, not only in your home life, but also in your conduct and character, in your habits. He gives us five vices that are not to characterize us, and then he gives us five virtues, or six virtues, sorry. I'm going to quickly work through these. You'll forget them, like I, so I don't need to get into fancy Greek. But it's just, again, painting a picture. But the first one's important. I really like how the ESV translates the first thing for this steward in his seeking to be unimpeachable, irreproachable. He must not be arrogant. It's an interesting word if you look at various translations some would say self-willed, 
Um, others would have to do, to do with sort of being um, aggressive, uh, steamrolling others. And it's hard to translate because the idea of this Greek word is basically they are self-centered. And I was thinking about this, how I've met people and I've wondered if they wanted to get into ministry so that they could have a following. Ministry can be very dangerous for narcissists. Great sermon, pastor. And I'm not opposed to that now and then, though I question your sanity. But it's a great way to, to, to attract people around yourself. So you can read this in Acts 20. The wolves come in and they seek to draw disciples after themselves. You see it in Corinth, where you've got factions around teachers. I am of, I am of, I am of. And so the first thing Paul says, after they have their, their family life in order, is that they must not be arrogant. Right? It's, it's got to be my way. It's all about me and my vision for the church. It's all about what I think needs to happen. And I was just thinking, I couldn't imagine having a plurality of elders where you've got everybody who has to have it their way. If you've got four self-willed guys, and unfortunately I'm the smallest, so I'd probably lose if it broke out into fisticuffs, though I am pretty crafty. But the first thing you should pray is, oh God, don't let any of our pastors ever get a big head. Let them never think that if the church is growing, it's because they're so awesome. The first thing is that we must not be arrogant. We must not be self-centered, self-seeking, self-willed, self-glorifying. And you can do that with fancy theological jargon. Our pastor's so smart. Our pastor is so this, so that. Second, you must not be quick-tempered. Why? Because you're dealing with sheep. And sheep can be very frustrating. Sheep can be very complaining. Sheep can be very needy. And this is why, again, it's good for an overseer to be healthy in his home because the way you care for children, and I'm not trying to, to, to throw shots, but like if you can't care for your children who are needy, how are you going to be able to care for the people of God who are needy? And that's okay. I'm needy too. But he must not be quick-tempered. You must be, as it were, stable so that when somebody says something that hurts your feelings or does something that is foolish, that you don't respond in kind or you don't use harshness. You're not quick to defend yourself. There's plenty of proverbs for this. And, and, and he who vents his spirit is a fool. Right? He, he who can't control his temper is like a city broken into and left without any walls of defense. And a quick-tempered elder, pastor, can do a lot of damage. Third, must not. We must not be a drunkard. And I would expand that to more than just alcohol. Again, this is a picture of a man who just is able to control himself, right, with food, with drink, with his internet use, with his time, with his commitments. And we're not perfect, but this is how you're praying for your pastors. This is how you're praying for the men of this church. This is how you're praying for everybody. But it starts from the top. Oh God, would you help me to be able to rule over some of those things that are even good? Wine's not a sin. Abusing it is. Right? Uh, having a hobby is not a sin. Being controlled by it is. And so again, this is the picture, right? They're above reproach. Someone's not going to say, well, he, he, he's at the golf course Six days a week, and then he, you know, he preaches for two hours. Well, probably half an hour. No, he's, he's not a drunkard. And this is unique, again, to Crete because they did have a problem with drink. And so Paul is saying that whoever this elder is, he needs to stand as a strong, stark contrast to what the culture here seems to love. Let's keep going. He must not be violent. The old King James says he must not be a striker. <laughs> Literally, and as one preacher I heard said, but you can also strike with your words. Right? Someone who just wants to attack, who wants to be nasty. And so you have to be careful because there can be strikers with fists or strikers with passive-aggressive things. That's just not good for the church, which is therefore not good for the glory of Christ, which is not good for the world. You must not be greedy for gain. 
And I would say the greatest way to avoid this is just be Reformed Baptist. They just, they just, they don't reward their pastors with like, you know, six figures. And I'm not complaining, but I'm just saying some guys you see on the internet, you can see they're all about the money. And you're going to see about that in the very next section, that these false teachers who have come in, they're disrupting entire families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And so does the man have greed? Is he in it for the money? Is he in it so that he can get perks? Is it in it so he can have an easy job? I remember a pastor saying this, that a lazy pastor can be so, like, you don't know what I do during the week. I could just easily download a really good sermon and just give that to you. It's very easy to be lazy, and that would be dishonest gain. So pray that the pastors would have a conviction. And you can ask my wife often. I just know my heart. I know, I know how much you guys sacrificially give, and it pains me to be tempted to be lazy because I know what you guys are doing to pay for our wages. So those are the five vices to be avoided for this overseer, this episkopos, right, as he seeks to be unimpeachable. Here are five things he must not be. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. Verse 8, rather. Right? Here's the virtues that are to characterize the leadership, which then trickles down into the congregation. As goes the shepherd, so goes the sheep. You see an unholy church? I can't guarantee it, but I would say, I would diagnose most likely it's because you have ungodly leaders. Okay, so notice here, but hospitable. Okay, so the first vice is everything's about me. Right? Self-centered, self-willed, self-ruled, arrogant. The very first virtue is actually the very opposite of that. You're other-centered. That's what hospitable means, right? You not only love good, you love others. And so you have them into your house. You're generous with them. You do everything possible for their upbuilding and for their good. Which reminds us again that pastors are not to sort of be in their little ivory towers separated from the sheep, but they are to be those who are with the sheep. First thing, hospitable. Is this man hospitable? Not only to his own household, but to those now in the household of God, and even, you could translate, to strangers. Second thing, he must be a lover of good. I thought it was interesting that Paul didn't say he must be a doer of good, though that's important. However, if you're a lover of good, you will be a doer of good. Because you can be a doer of good without being a lover of good. Did I confuse anybody with that? Or like, if I'm a curmudgeon, I'm like, well, I've got to do good, I'm a pastor. Right? I've got to put on a show. I've got to preach this, and I've got to say that, and I've got to go visit them. Then I would be disqualified. See, you're going to see in Titus, good works are essential and crucial to the mission of God. Just go and read Titus and just highlight wherever it says good works. Good works are important. They're not for salvation, but they flow from it, and they are now a great witness to the world of the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel doesn't just justify us. The gospel transforms us. It changes us into the image of Christ, the ultimate lover of good. Okay, and we're going to see that all of these virtues that are put off and all these virtues that are put on flow out of a man who has his eyes on the gospel. Amen. He is hospitable. He's a lover of good. Self-controlled. It's very close to the word that is unimpeachable, but he is able to reign his life in his desires he is able to be even keeled i think one translation says sensible right i would translate this just level-headed right because ministry can be like this and so can he control his tongue can he control his emotions can he control his passions is he able to steady the course even when the times are turbulent Hospitable, lover of good, self-controlled. And then the last three go together. Upright, holy, and disciplined. Upright means righteous. Is he just? Is he fair? Not is he only justified, you could say that, but also does he live that out? Does he love righteous deeds? 
Does he have a, a holiness about him, a weightiness, a gravity, because he knows the presence of God, because he knows the holiness of God? As we saw that last week, this idea of godliness has this idea of being confronted with the majesty of God. Is there a, a weightiness? I get it. I'm not, you know, we don't come here and put on our pastor or reverend voice, how are you today? Oh, he's very holy. And no, there just seems like he's been in the presence of God. That he hates sin and he fears displeasing his master. And then again, disciplined. Very close to self-control. And that's why I'm saying Paul is painting a general picture here. Right? And, and not only the church, but even the world, we would say in Timothy. If someone said, Charles is a pastor, his boss should be like, yeah, it makes sense. He's an elder. Your neighbor should be able to say, yeah, that makes sense. And I hope you would be able to say that about all of us as well. Because if we're not, then we're going to be no different from the world, which was the problem in Crete, is that these ungodly, worldly men had come in, and rather than teaching the gospel, they were teaching all kinds of ear-tickling truths, or uh, falsehoods, I should say, and they were looking like the world. And the pastors are to be a model of good works that is predicated upon good theology. Verse 9, and we'll keep going. I, I know I'm just working through the text. This is one of those, I tried to alliterate. I'm like, I'm going to forget this in two weeks. If you saw my alliteration, you would call my sanity into question. But I'm just working through this. All I want you to remember is how crucial healthy leadership is to a healthy church for a healthy witness in the world. If that's what you take away, awesome. Like, I, I forget what they were. Well, you know it's in Titus 1, and you can just read it. What were the five? I didn't even know there was five. Just read the text and then pray it. Verse 9, the ESV and most translations start with a new sentence. He must hold firm. That's an unfortunate translation. Because, as you homeschoolers know, everyone else tunes me out, but when I talk about participles, which are like really good friends of mine, it's linking it to the verb of the previous section. You must be. You must not be. And then verse 9 is explaining the how. The overseers need to have all of these characteristics about them in their home and in their habits. Well, how do you get them? And this is kind of, right, we like secret keys and secret knowledges and like here's some, this is it. By holding firm. I would translate that clinging to. Right? If you're out at sea and there was a life raft or a board, and that was your only means of survival, would you hold on to it loosely? No, you'd cling to it, for your life depended on it. Well, elders need to cling to this word, for their holiness depends on it. We can put on a show for only so long. If we're not men of this book, not just, not just reading it. I love, I love Paul's picture here. He doesn't just say knowing the trustworthy taught, word is taught but holding firm to it, clinging to it as though his very life and holiness depended on it, because it does. You must hold firm to what? The trustworthy word. That's the gospel. It's not just, okay, he reads his Proverbs every day. For Paul, this word logos is always the gospel. We saw that last week. God manifested his word, his logos. He's manifested his good news of his plan to save a people for himself in Christ, whom he sent into the world at just the right time, for both Jew and for Gentile, to live a blameless life, irreproachable and sinless, to die for sinners and then to be raised and to be exalted and to pour out the Spirit and to build the church. This is the gospel. Not just life lessons, but the gospel, what God has done to save a people for himself in Christ. And that's what we need to cling to. And I'm so thankful, whether it's like Carlin, when he, when he read from the song, I was just like, yes, you showed us Christ. The godly, the chassid of, of, of Psalm 12, he's gone, but Christ is here. He has come. He has lived that life. And then Cliff from Isaiah 41, he's showing us Christ. Israel's the servant in, in Isaiah 41, and they failed. But there's another servant who came, and he succeeded. And I'm holding first firm to that gospel in Isaiah 41 or Psalm 12 or Titus 1 or wherever you're reading. Hold to it as though your life 
and holiness depended on it. Notice, though, it says, as taught. Literally, you could translate that according to the teaching. And some of you are going to sort of bristle at this, but it's not enough just to read the Bible. The Bible is a book of doctrine. And this is the beauty of things like Sunday school, of creeds, of confessions. People who have systematized the Bible, right? Because I know people. They read the Bible. They do not understand something like justification by faith alone in Christ alone. They read the Bible. But this is why the pastors need to be not only men who know the book, but understand it. Right? There's people you know. They're even unbelievers, and they read the Bible, and they don't understand it. And this is why Paul says to Titus, you, you need to hold firm to the gospel as I taught it to you the apostolic doctrine of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. So hold firm to the gospel. Hold firm to the word according to the teaching. Why? Because there are other people who use the Bible wrongly. Right? The false teachers are going to appeal to it, but not according to the teaching, not according to the way Paul taught it to Titus. Titus makes sure these elders not only know the Bible, they know what it says. They know what it means. That they might be able to do what? Give instruction. Literally, that's that word parakletos. It means just to encourage. So I need to know what it says so I can encourage God's people. So that I might have the ability, the power to encourage them with healthy doctrine. Did you know there's something called unhealthy doctrine? And you're going to see that next week. These false teachers, oh, they're pumping the doctrine out, but it's not sound. It's not healthy. So pray that your pastors would be men who give themselves to the study of God's Word, to the reading and to the study of God's Word. Some people are like, my pastor studies too much. Maybe, but I would say most churches, the pastors don't study enough. Right? They are to encourage the saints, not entertain them. I'm not saying that so I can hide away in my office for 40 hours. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I have to give an account as a steward to God one day, and he has called us as elders to encourage in not personality, not in tweets, not in YouTube videos, but to encourage with sound or healthy doctrine from the Word of God. One hand, he encourages the sheep. On the other hand, he rebukes or refutes the wolves. You see that? As we hold firm, not only are our lives exhibiting godliness, but we're also able to give sound doctrine and encourage God's people, but also rebuke. I would translate that expose. That's that word to mean shine light on. Because there's going to be people in churches who worm their way in. And how are you going to be able to know if what they're teaching is false? You need to expose it with the word of God. But if you don't know the Word of God, everything will sound plausible. We saw that in Colossians, right? These fine-sounding arguments that are plausible. In Romans 16, they come in and they deceive the gullible and the naive. So pray that your pastors would know the Word, would encourage with the Word, and also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. John Calvin said this, that a pastor has to have two voices, you ever heard this quote? One that he speaks softly to the sheep to build them up, and another harshly to speak to the wolves to beat them back. And it's the same word, though it's a different voice. And we are saying we encourage the sheep with the gospel, but we rebuke the wolves also with the gospel. Why? Because next week you're going to see there are many who have come in who don't know the word, who are teaching false doctrine, and they're upsetting families, whole families, not just individuals, whole families that proliferate. And then all of a sudden now, rather than adorning the gospel of God our Savior, they're besmirching it, making it muddy and unattractive. So what are we to do? Make sure that in, in Tabor and in Lethbridge, wherever we're planting, we're praying and appointing godly men, men who are above reproach, in their homes and in their habits, men who not only live 
the doctrine, but also teach the doctrine. And to live and teach the doctrine, you need to know the doctrine. And to know the doctrine, you have to cling to the trustworthy word of God. Can I just put that out there for you as well? That you would also be seeking this? Would you pray that the pastors would model this? That we'd be able to show you that God's grace has come in the person of Christ and it doesn't only save us from the power or the penalty of our sins, but also from the power and presence of our sins. Did you know the gospel can not only justify you before God, but can make you a better husband, can make you a better father, can make you a better worker, that the gospel is the power of God that enables you to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? So here's the servant of God, the apostle of Christ, saying, everything I do is for the glory of God in Christ, through the church to the ends of the earth. Have godly elders. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. This is just not like a Romans 1 passage or Ephesians 2, I get it. And yet, you have given it to us. And you have commanded, Lord, whether Titus or Timothy, to watch their life, to watch their doctrine, so that those who hear them, they, they might be saved. But that they also, Lord, might grow up into their salvation. And so, Father, I just pray that we would be a church that takes seriously Paul's charge, Paul's authoritative command, that we would not try to outsmart God. Lord, I pray that uh, now and for years and decades to come, that there would be only godly qualified men who fill these roles of, of, of overseer, of pastor, of shepherd. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a trickle-down effect Lord, that it wouldn't only be uh, the gospel preached from the pulpit, but it would also be the, the gospel lived out in daily life, and that our beliefs would fuel our behavior, and that our creed and conduct would be consistent. I pray, Lord, that our faith and practice uh, would be fueled by the gospel, and Lord, that others would see, and we would have uh, an inroads to make uh, gospel opportunities and share to them the hope that is in us. Lord, I pray that we would be an attractive church, not the way the world sees attractive, but attractive because there is men and women and families who are above reproach, who are self-controlled, who live uh, upright, holy, and, and, um, and godly lives in this present age. Lord, we pray that your spirit would be fueling all of this and you would help us. Even on a, on a treacherous drive to church, I pray that somehow, some way. We have learned something, somehow, some way, Lord, that we have, we have clamped down on something and somehow, in some way, we would endeavor to live perhaps as better husbands or wives or children or workers, but we would seek to be lovers of good works. Would you feel us now for that this week, Lord, as we go out into a world that you love, seeking to make disciples of all nations and bringing them into this family, into the household of God. Would you help us to behave the way children ought to in this household, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.